before I get all emotional, let's turn to the Word of God. Last week, we wrapped up chapter 9 of the book of Romans. We're in our 63rd lesson from the book of Romans, and we'll start chapter 10. Now, the last few verses of Romans chapter 9 laid the groundwork for chapter 10. As a matter of fact, the the central theme of chapter 10 was contained in last week's lesson. Uh, the main point last week was the contrast between the works of the law and faith. The Gentiles, who never had the law, obtained salvation by faith, while the Jews who possessed the law failed to obtain salvation at all. That was the the crux of last week's lesson. The, The reason the Jews could not obtain salvation was because they pursued it by works instead of by faith. Instead of trusting in God for salvation, they tried to earn their salvation by their good works. Their goal was never righteousness by the grace of God, which is what God intended for them to uh, obtain all along. But their goal was righteousness by law-keeping. They never understood that the law was given to them to steer them into a relationship with God. They never understood that the law was given to them to bring them to the place that they had to put their faith in God. No man could fulfill the law. No man could keep every letter of the law. The only way a man could be saved under the law system was to put his faith in God. That's why Paul said in Galatians 3 and 23 that the law was designed to shut men up to faith. That, that word doesn't mean shut up. It means to hem them in, to close them in to faith, that to cut off every other possible response to God. They were supposed to see in the law, my good works can't save me. They were supposed to see in the law, I don't have any righteousness. They were supposed to see in the law, I can't do this for myself. I need God. And the law was supposed to drive them. It was supposed to compel them to faith in God. Amen. It was supposed to cut off everything else and leave the only option to be faith in God. We know, though, that they took the law and instead devised a system of self-righteousness. And instead of finding faith in God as the, as the means to be saved, they construed within the law a system by which they could save themselves by their righteous acts. And so that sets up verse 10, or I mean chapter 10, which will continue that discussion. We'll do the first four verses this morning. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we'll go back and start with verse 1. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear record, I bear them record, that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. So that's the, the, the text for this morning. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Brethren, 
my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, if you'll notice, and if you're looking at chapter 10 in your Bible, you can flip back to chapter 9 and, and see the beginning of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 9 are very similar. They begin the same way. In both chapters, Paul begins by expressing his deep burden for the Israelites, his kinsmen after the flesh. But this time, Paul characterizes his burden for Israel as his heart's desire. In, in modern vernacular, we might say that what, what Paul was saying was, from the bottom of my heart, I long to see Israel saved. From, from the very depth of my being, from the, that very deep and sincere place within me, I want to see Israel saved. He was trying to express the depth and sincerity of his desire to see Israel saved, my heart's desire. And the thing that, that is so important here is that Paul's desire was so strong that it motivated him to pray for the Jews. He said, my heart's desire and prayer. That word prayer there has to do with supplication. Paul is saying, I go to God regularly on behalf of Israel with this request. I, I have a desire to see my brethren saved, and the strength of that desire is indicated by the fact that it gives rise to prayer and supplication before God. The salvation of the Jews... It's not just a passing whim to Paul. It's not just something that he's thinking maybe it would be good if it happened. He is moved to prayer. He is moved to build an altar, to lay himself on that altar, and to make intercession for his kinsmen after the flesh that are lost. Amen. This matters enough to Paul that he's going to get up early in the morning and he's going to find a place to seek the face of God on behalf of his brethren that are lost. Amen. It's not enough to Paul just to say, well, I, I hope they get saved. Uh, but somewhere along the way, he said, I've got to take some, some uh, initiative and I'm going to build an altar and I'm going to beseech God on their behalf. I'm going to make supplication to God. I'm going to pray for them. Amen. It matters enough to Paul that he makes his request known in prayer to God. The point here is not just that Paul was a praying man, although that's a good point to make. Paul prayed. Amen. But the point is that his desire to see the lost saved drove him to prayer on their behalf, not just once or twice, not just every now and again, but regularly Paul's desire was demonstrated by his prayers. Now here's the question that you need to ask yourself this morning. Do we really care about our lost loved ones if we don't pray for them? Do we really care about, do we really have a desire to see a lost city saved? if we don't carry that desire to the Lord in prayer? Do we really have a compassion for the lost, a desire, a heartfelt desire to see them come to saving faith, to recognize Jesus Christ for who he is and to turn their life over to him if it doesn't give birth to prayer in our lives? You see, you can gauge your desire by your altar. 
You can gauge how. Now, it's one thing to say, I want my family to be saved. I want my coworkers to be saved. I want the people that live on the same street as me to be saved. I want this lost city to be saved. I want the mayor to be saved. I want the fire chief. But if you don't pray, it, it gives evidence to how strong that desire really is. Amen? Paul's desire for the salvation of the Jews gave birth to prayer. What's your desire giving birth to in your life? Amen? What, what is that desire for revival? Do we really want revival? Are we really hungry for an outpouring of the Holy Ghost? Are we really hungry for a move of God? The answer to that question is measured on an altar. It's measured in prayer. Amen? Perhaps the problem is we don't recognize the power of prayer. Or, or perhaps we're too complacent and too satisfied with where we are and what we're doing. Either way, we have to recognize that prayer is the outlet of a, gen, of a genuine desire to see the lost saved. If we really have a desire to see our lost loved ones saved, we'll pray for them. Amen? Perhaps we need to ask the Lord to increase our desire. Perhaps we need to ask the Lord to stir us up. Perhaps we need to ask the Lord to give us a genuine burden, the kind of burden that drives us to an altar, the kind of burden that drives us to a place of prayer. Paul believed that he could intercede for the hopelessly lost nation of Israel and perhaps by his intercession he would see some be saved. And he said in the very beginning, way back in chapter 9, we, we talked about the fact that only a remnant, only a few are going to come out of that nation. Only a few are going to be saved. That didn't stop Paul from building an altar and praying that the few would be saved. Amen. A few can be a lot. I, I mean, if, when you look at the number of, of Jews that there were, the, the concept, the biblical Old Testament prophetic concept of a remnant doesn't really have a number attached to it. We just know there's a remnant. There, there's, there's a few coming out. Paul is saying, I'm not satisfied with what I have. I know that the, that the broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there are that are going to walk in it. And I know that narrow is the way that leads to truth, and a few there be that will find it. But that word few isn't defined in a number, and I'm not satisfied with the few we have. I'm hungry to see more. Amen. I'm hungry to reach somebody else. I'm hungry. Paul said, I know that there are Jews that are in the church. There are Jews that have found salvation. There are Jews that have found grace by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and there is a remnant, but I'm not satisfied with that. Amen. Because my Bible doesn't tell me the remnant is limited to a specific number. I'm going to keep reaching. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep trying and striving to see somebody else come to faith, to see somebody else come to salvation. I'm not going to be satisfied. Prayerlessness is an indicator of complacency. It's an indicator that we're satisfied with us four no more. Amen? It's an indicator that we've reached the place where, you know, we, we really, we really, we're really not that concerned with seeing the lost saved. Paul believed that he could intercede, that he could pray and somehow make a difference in the eternal destination of lost souls in his world. We ought to believe the same thing. Amen? Verse 2 said, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, 
but not according to knowledge. So Paul says of the Jews, I bear them record, which literally means I bear witness, or you might say before a judge, I do solemnly testify. They have a zeal for God. The strength of that statement is that it's based on Paul's own experience. Paul was one of them. Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the, the, the best and the brightest among them. He, he was the, a leader among the Jews. And he was truly zealous for God. He was passionate about worshiping God. As a matter of fact, he was so zealous for God that he gave himself completely to the destruction of the Christian church. He was so zealous for the Ancient of Days, the one who was and is and forever will be the God of the Old Testament. He was so zealous for him that he desired to completely wipe out this new faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul knows the zeal of the Jews is genuine. He knows the zeal of the Jews is real, even if it's misplaced, because that's exactly where he was when God reached down and got a hold of him with mercy overtook him. What Paul is saying is they have a genuine desire to serve God. They have a real zeal for God. They have a genuine desire to know God. The Jews are sincere in their attempt to serve God. Paul knows this is true because he was there. They've missed God. They've completely missed the mark but it's not for lack of having tried. It's not for lack of a desire to please God. They, they've missed God. They've missed what God required of them, what God called them to do. But it's not because they aren't sincere in their effort to serve God. Paul thought he was doing the right thing. Paul thought that he was in the will of God when he was persecuting the Christian church. He thought he was pleasing God. When the book of Acts says that he was breathing threats and slaughter against the I'm sorry, against the disciples of the Lord, Paul was sincere in his desire to defend truth the way he understood it. He was sincere in his desire to please God. When Paul came marching down the Damascus road, his heart was full of righteous indignation. He was certain that he was acting on God's behalf. He was certain that he was the instrument of God. And no one was more shocked than Paul was when the very voice of God thundered from the heavens and asked, why are you persecuting me? In a moment of confusion, Paul said, who are you? I never set out to persecute God. I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to please God. My, my, my effort is sincere. I've got great zeal for God. Who are you? The idea that persecuting the church was persecuting the very God that he served was incomprehensible to Paul. It was beyond belief to him. But it was the response of God that changed everything for Paul. Because that voice from heaven said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And all of a sudden, everything Paul thought he knew about God 
changed. All of a sudden, his religious zeal and his fervor, all of a sudden, that was all in vain. All of a sudden, he realized he was sincere. He was, he was genuine in his effort to please God, but he had missed God altogether. And all of a sudden, he realized he was fighting the wrong fight. The mighty God, the ancient of days, the one who was and is and forever will be, the almighty said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. The problem for Paul or for any other sincere Jew in the first century was not a lack of passion. It was not a lack of sincerity. It was not a lack of zeal. The problem was a fundamental lack of knowledge. They misunderstood the plan of God. And because of that, they missed the very fulfillment of the law of God. They never realized who Jesus was. That's Paul's problem on the Damascus Road. He's got a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, he's got a zeal for God, but he's missed the whole plan and purpose of God. He doesn't know who Jesus is. It's not until God's voice thunders from heaven and says, I am Jesus, that all of a sudden Paul realizes, I missed the ship. I was at the bus, I was at the train station when my bus came in, or I was at, at the bus station when my boat came in. I've missed the thing. I was chasing the wrong thing. What we have to see here is the fact that it is possible to be zealous, to be sincere, to be enthusiastic about God, and at the same time to be completely wrong and to have no understanding of truth and to have no knowledge of the true plan of God. It's possible to be sincere in your pursuit of God and be lost. And if anybody knows that, Paul knows it. It's possible to be sincere in your desire to please God and be lost. Think about it for a minute. Nobody tried harder to please God than the Jews did. Nobody put any more effort into it. No one had any more zeal for the things of God than they had. But they missed God completely. They had the law. They had the scriptures that testified of Jesus Christ. But they were blind to them. They were blind to the truth that those scriptures contained. There are a lot of people who are sincere in the desire to serve God, who are sincere in their effort to please God. But as heartbreaking as it is, sincerity alone does not guarantee salvation. Zeal for God does not guarantee salvation. The Jews were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. And the only thing that could save them was the knowledge of the truth of the Word of God. Sincerity or religious zeal is not and has never been the deciding factor in salvation. Faithful obedience 
to the revealed word of God, to the plan of God, is the only thing that ever saved anyone from the foundations of the earth. And it's the only thing that ever will save anybody. There are many, and it's a regretful condition, but there are many in the world today, good men and good women, who love God, who are sincere in the desire to know Him, who are sincere in the desire to serve Him, who are sincere in their effort to please Him, that are lost, not because of their lack of desire, but because of their lack of knowledge. That's what Paul said. Not because of their lack of zeal, but because of their lack of knowledge. That should stir us. That should bother us. That should put within us the kind of desire that drives us to an altar of prayer. That should do to us what it did to Paul. It should birth a, a deep desire in our hearts that manifests itself in heart-rending intercession that those who have such a sincere desire to know God would find him. That they would discover truth before it's too late. You see, the Jews were not lost because they didn't have knowledge available to them. The knowledge was in the Word of God. It, it was available to them. They had it. They were lost because they failed to see the knowledge that had been given to them. Think about that for a minute. They weren't lost because God withheld knowledge from them. God gave them the law. Jesus Christ himself said, read the scriptures. They testify of me. God gave them the law. The law testified of Jesus Christ. It contained the knowledge that they needed. They were not lost because they didn't have access to the knowledge. They were lost because they failed to see what they had been given. The Bible contains all the knowledge that anybody, anywhere will ever need to be saved. You don't need another book. You don't need a companion volume. You don't need some other kind of instruction. Everything you need to know to be saved is in the Word of God. He's given you access to that knowledge. The problem is not that folks don't have access to the knowledge that they need. The problem is that they don't recognize the knowledge they have. Perhaps like the Jews, they're blinded by tradition. Perhaps they, they never read the word for themselves. Perhaps they trust somebody else's interpretation of Scripture. The bottom line is, whatever the case, it's a sobering thought to think that just like the Jews, there are people who are sincere, who have all the knowledge they need, but don't see truth in what they have haven't found truth in the word of God. No one will ever stand before God and say, well, I, I didn't have access to it. This is the most printed book in the history of the world. This is, this is a number one bestseller in every generation ever known to man. That's not, just, that's not just something you say to sound cute. That's the absolute truth. This is the number one bestseller in the entire world. Thanks to the efforts of the Gideons, you can walk into any hotel room in the world just about and pick up a, a translation of the Bible in whatever language necessary for where you are. There's not an absence of the knowledge. 
there's an absence of the revelation. There's an absence of the understanding that comes from truly seeking God. The problem with us as a culture is that the Bible is more of a bookend than it is something that we look to for answers. It's more of an ornamental piece on a shelf somewhere than it is something that we turn to as a culture to seek the presence of God. We find our answers in psychology. We find our answers in philosophy. We find our answers on the evening news. We find our answer from all those talking heads. The answers are right here in the Word of God. And no man's going to stand before God and say, well, so-and-so misled me. No, the Bible said, and I had access to the Bible. Amen? The sobering thing here is you can be sincere and be lost. You can be sincere and miss the very will of God. And it's not just, we're not talking about second place in a race. We're talking about heaven or hell. We're talking about eternity. You can be sincere and be lost. Verse 3 says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So the knowledge that the Jews lacked was knowledge of God's righteousness or the righteousness of God. First of all, let's get the perspective right. We're not talking about righteousness as an attribute of God. God is righteous. He is, he, can't, he, he is right and there is no wrong in him. He is the pinnacle of what it means to be righteous. But we're not talking about righteousness as an attribute of God. We're talking about the righteousness that God offers to us. The righteousness of God or God's righteousness is the righteousness that he gives us. That's right standing with God. That's what it means to be righteous. Right standing with God. With God, I get on right terms with God. I, I get my sins are in the front. My my the the callousness of my heart, the wrong in my life that that puts a separation between me and God. But righteousness means I get in right standing with God. All that stuff gets removed, and I get in right standing with God. The fundamental error of the Jews pertain to how one obtains righteousness from God. Now, this goes back to last week's lesson. They didn't win the race because they weren't running in the right direction. They didn't obtain the grace of God because they weren't pursuing it in the right way. They were going in an entirely wrong direction. God gave them a means of obtaining righteousness. God gave them the law. He gave them everything they needed to get righteousness. The law was supposed to drive them to faith in God, but they took the law and constructed their own self-righteous means of salvation. They took the law and made for themselves a way that they could save themselves. They completely misunderstood the law. The blood of bulls and goats would never save men and women. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't have the ability to cover sin. The only legitimate basis for salvation under the law is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
The entire law system looked forward to the cross. It was designed to point to Jesus Christ. And everyone who was saved under the law was saved by their faith in God, which was expressed by their obedience to the Word of God. They offered sacrifices to God, a sacrificial lamb. But the blood of that lamb couldn't save them. It was their faith in God. The faith that said, I'll obey God and offer the sacrifice that he requires. That faith connected the blood of their sacrifice to the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the blood that saves them. The law can't do it. The, 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 the system of offering bulls and goats and lambs, that can't do it. The entire program, the entire system points to Jesus Christ. But they misconstrued the system. And because they misconstrued the system, because they changed the intent and the purpose of the law, they missed Jesus that's why Jesus would say, read the scripture, it testifies of me. Because the scripture they were reading didn't testify of Jesus. It testified of their own works. Not because they had the wrong scripture, but because they had the wrong understanding. They were reading something there that wasn't there. They were making it to be something that it was not. It was supposed to testify of Jesus Christ, but they were arrogant and they, their ignorance of God's righteousness drove them to establish their own righteousness based on their own works. They believed that they could save themselves, and so they sought to earn their own salvation by their own works. And by so doing, he says, they refused to submit themselves. They've not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. One writer said it this way. They rejected the robes of righteousness that God offered them and instead preferred their own filthy rags of righteousness. The scripture says, my righteousness is as filthy rags before him. He offered me genuine righteousness. But the Jews said, I, I, I prefer my own. I put on my own righteousness. And my own righteousness isn't righteous. My own righteousness is like filthy rags in the of God. They refused to submit to do it God's way. Here's the, here's the key. That refusal to submit is rebellion. God said, this is what I require. God's word laid it out very plainly. This is what I require. And they refused to submit to God's word. Instead said, I'll find a better way and I'll twist God's word to support my better way. It was, it was rebellion against the plan of God. So they took God's plan, and they twisted it into their own self-righteous approach to serving God. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. It's the same thing that Cain did when he offered his sacrifice to God. I'll serve God on my own terms. I'll serve God in my own way. I'll serve God in a way that makes sense to me. I'll serve God in a way that, that is more pleasing to my flesh. I'll serve God in a way that, that I'm comfortable with. Let me tell you something. You don't ever come to God on your own terms. 
Nobody ever came to God on their own terms. And those who did or tried to failed miserably. You come to God on God's terms. He's God. I'm just a man. He's God. What he says is what goes. He orders the universe. He spoke the world into existence by his word. And I'm just a feeble man that he created. The scripture said, can the pot tell the potter, this is how you need to make me? Can the clay speak to the master and say, this is how you need to form me? Can't happen. I don't come to God and say, this is my righteousness. You've got to accept it. This is the plan of salvation, the way I understand it. And you have to accept it because this is what I understand. No, God said, this is what's in my word. This is what the Bible says. This is what the book says. You have access to it just like everybody else. You have to come to God on his own terms. So verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. I'm sorry. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Verse 3 is the heart of this paragraph. But verse 4 is where Paul drops the hammer. Where the law ends, Christ begins. The law ends with representative sacrifice. I bring a lamb, and it's representative of something that I don't understand, that I'm just grabbing a hold of by faith. But Jesus Christ is the real sacrifice. That's what the Jews of the Old Testament never understood. They don't know what the lamb represents. They just know it represents the grace and the mercy of God. And in faith, they're going to obey God. But that lamb was representative of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the end of the law. Where the law ends, that's when Jesus begins. The law ends with representative sacrifice. And Jesus becomes that sacrifice. All along, the law pointed to Jesus. All along, the law was supposed to lead the Jews to a place where they recognized and accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That was the point. That was the purpose. That's what it was all about. That's why Paul would say later, the law was the schoolmaster that was supposed to bring men to Jesus Christ. The law never saved by works. The law always saved by faith. There was nobody anywhere under all of the history of humanity that was ever saved by their works. The law always saved by faith. And that faith ultimately was faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't know his name in the Old Testament. They didn't know who he was in the Old Testament. They couldn't see far enough down the timeline of human history or the timeline of redemptive history to tell you how God was going to do it. But when they put their faith in the Word of God and they laid that lamb on an altar and sacrificed it for their sins, their faith was in Jesus Christ. When they put their faith in God, in the word of God, and obeyed the word of God, they offered their sin offering to God. And the blood of bulls and goats was representative of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the object of their faith was God manifest in the flesh, laying down his own life and reconciling the world unto himself. They didn't understand that, amen, but they didn't have to understand it to grasp it by faith. They just had to have faith that I can't save myself. 
And I'm going to put my faith in the, the plan of God. I'm not righteous in and of myself. And I'm going to put my faith in the plan of God. I'm going to obey the word of God. I'm going to do what the scripture says I have to do. And that faith activates the plan and the purpose of God that's beyond their understanding. And while they're in the Old Testament laying an all, a lamb on an altar, amen, and that blood is being shed that's going to roll their sins ahead and ultimately carry them all the way to the cross, Jesus Christ is the one that's saving them of their sins. Amen? Jesus, Paul says, was the fulfillment. He was the completion of the entire sacrificial system. Listen, if you separate the sacrificial system of the Old Testament from the cross, then the law has no meaning. If you separate the Old Testament system of salvation, the law, from the cross, then it has no meaning. The blood of bulls and goats cannot save. That is a, that is a forever settled truth of the word of God. Only the precious blood of heaven's perfect sacrifice has the power to atone for sin. The law was representative, and Jesus was the one being represented. He was the end of the law. He was the final sacrifice. His blood made the whole thing work, but his blood was never appropriated into life by mere works. His blood was always appropriated into life by genuine faith in God. And genuine faith in God always results in obedience. That's the point where so many go astray. Faith doesn't eliminate the need for obedience. Faith does not eliminate the need to submit yourself to God. Faith gives meaning to obedience. Faith gives substance to the law. The law isn't valid without faith. Without faith, law-keeping was hollow and dead because it was not connected to Jesus Christ. But when the law was kept through faith, it validated the whole thing. Jesus was the anchor that established the entire system. And the only way to attach the obedience of the law to Jesus Christ was through faith. That doesn't mean, though, that they didn't have to obey the law to be saved. The only way that they knew to serve God was on the basis of the revealed word of God, what God told them to do. What it means is the basis of their obedience was supposed to be faith in God, not faith in themselves. That's where the Jews missed it. That's where they went wrong. They put their faith in their works instead of in God. It doesn't invalidate the fact that they kept the law. God told them to keep the law. It was the fact that they put their faith in themselves instead of putting their faith in God. The Jews missed the importance of faith and completely invested themselves in works that had no meaning because they were disconnected from faith. They were disconnected from the cross of Jesus Christ. 
That was their, the Jews were way over here in this extreme where they, they took works and completely disconnected it from faith and said, I'm going to be saved right here by works without any faith. The many people in our world today make the exact opposite error. They swing the pendulum to the completely other side. They have invested themselves in the notion that faith can be completely disconnected from obedience. I'm going to believe in God, and that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to obey Him. Uh, it doesn't matter what the Word says. My faith in God alone is going to save me, and I don't have to have any obedience. I don't have to have any submission to God. I'm just going to believe Him. It's the same pendulum. It's just the opposite extreme. It's the other side. They swung the pendulum to the other direction. James saw the potential for that. And under the inspiration of God, he wrote in the scripture, wrote to the church, faith without works is dead. It's not that you can, you can't be saved by works without faith. And you can't be saved by faith without any obedience to the word of God. Neither end of that spectrum works. Salvation is over here where there's faith that obeys God. There's faith that responds to God. There's faith that follows God. It is, if you get faith without obedience, it's disconnected from Jesus Christ. It's disconnected from the cross just as much as the keeping of the law was disconnected from the cross when it was without faith. Faith that doesn't have any obedience to the word of God, it's just as disconnected from the cross. It's just as disconnected from the word and the plan of God. The fact that we're justified by faith in God does not abolish the need to be obedient to the revealed word of God or the plan of God for our lives. Instead, faith gives meaning to our obedience. Just like faith would have given meaning to the works. There were people saved under the law. If you believe that the law couldn't save no matter what, which is if you disconnect the law from faith, that's what you got. You got works, and works can't save at all. Then you have to ask yourself, how was Abraham saved? How are Isaac and Jacob, how are they saved? How is David saved? How are the prophets in the Old Testament, how are they saved? They're saved by the obedience of the word of God connected with faith, which ties them to the cross. That's the only way anybody's ever saved. Jesus Christ said, I am the way the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father except by me. There's no other way. Never has been and never will be. If you take faith and you disconnect it from obedience to the word, you've got the same problem. There's no validation there. You're not tied to the cross. Jesus didn't say, believe in me and you'll be saved. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Take up the cross and obey, submit, surrender, yield, humble yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Faith without obedience is just as disconnected from Jesus Christ as obedience without faith. Repentance without faith in God is empty. It's meaningless. It can't accomplish anything. 
if I repent of my sins and I don't believe God can forgive me of my sins, it doesn't do anything for me. That's, that's works without faith. But if I believe that God can forgive me of my sins and I don't repent of my sins, that doesn't do anything for me either. Somewhere faith and obedience have got to be linked together. And I've got to say, you know what? I believe that God will forgive me of my sins, so I'm going to repent of my sins. And I'm going to put them under the blood of Jesus. Baptism in the name of Jesus Christ isn't what washes away my sins. It's my faith in that name. I believe and I confess that name. And the baptismal tank, that name is spoken over me. And it's that name that puts me in covenant with God. Baptism without faith, it can't save me. But belief that he can wash away my sins without baptism, that doesn't save me either. Mark 16 and 16 said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's the words of Jesus Christ. For those, some people, that matters more than, than Paul and Peter. Now, I believe that all Scripture is given under inspiration of God, and all of it's the word of God. For some people, that matters more. So that's the words of Jesus Christ. They're written in red in your Bible. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized. It takes faith and obedience to bring salvation. Amen. I'm thankful that God filled me with the Holy Ghost and I speak with tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. But if I speak in tongues and I don't allow the Spirit of God to change me, and I don't allow the Spirit of God to cause Christ to be formed in me. And I don't allow the Spirit of God to mold and make my life and produce righteousness in my life. I'm going to be lost. Because it takes faith and obedience. The truth of Scripture that many have missed is that saving faith has always included, included obedience to the Word of God. Noah's family was saved from the flood. How? On the basis of Noah's faith in the word of God. But Noah's faith alone didn't save them. He obeyed God and he built the boat. And that ark, that ark's what preserved his family from the flood. That ark was the result of his faith. If Noah said, Lord... I believe that it's going to rain and you're going to save my family, but I'm just not going to build a boat. Guess who would have drowned? Noah and all of his family. On the other hand, if Noah said, I'm going to build a boat, but I don't believe God can save me and I'd built the boat and works without faith, guess who was going to drown? I don't care how big you built it and how well you built it. If God didn't preserve that boat, it was going to sink. But it was faith and obedience together where Noah said, I believe, God, that there's a storm coming. I believe it's about to rain, and I'm going to build this boat because you told me to. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. How did God know he believed? Because he obeyed God and left Ur and left his family and left everything and said, I'm going to obey what God told me to do. And the Scripture said, that act of faith... That act of faith, that obedience of faith, he was justified by that. He was made righteous by that. 
Not that he, it's not just that he decided to move and to leave Ur and go live in Canaan land. That's not what saved him. And it's not that he believed that God called him to go to Canaan land. That's not what saved him. It's the fact that he believed that God called him and he said, you know what? I'm going to obey God. And I'm going to do what he called me to do. I'm going to go where he called me to go. Way back in Romans, I'm, I'm quickly coming to a close. Way back in Romans chapter 1, the fifth verse, Paul said that he received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. We said then, and that's been two years ago, 62, 61 lessons ago because it was our second lesson, that the expression in the Greek in Romans 1 and 5 was a very strong statement that obedience springs from faith. And faith without obedience is not faith at all. The, the actual way you would have written that, it's written in the English, in, in the King James, as received it, uh, grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. But the way you would write that, if you translated it literally the way it's written, it would be faith's obedience with a possessive S. Faith's obedience. It is the idea that faith and obedience are not just connected. F obedience springs from faith. That's why James says faith without works is dead. Because faith that doesn't produce obedience isn't faith. Obedience springs from faith. It comes from faith. Faith gives rise to obedience. And faith without obedience, that's not faith. I've used the example a hundred times, and I'll probably use it a hundred more. But if I said right now, the first person that came to this pulpit, I'd give you a hundred dollar bill, crisp and clean and new. If you believed me, you'd come. And if you, unless you just don't want a hundred dollars. Who in this room doesn't want a hundred dollars? Well, we're all too timid to admit it, but if I walked up and handed it to anybody, nobody would say, you know what, I can't think of anything I'd want to do with a $100 bill. Amen? If nothing else, it'll buy a bluebell ice cream. You had to drive to Texas to get it, but it'll buy a bluebell ice cream. Amen? The point is, if you believe, you do something. It is a tragic misunderstanding of the Word of God to come to the conclusion that faith gives men an excuse to ignore the moral law of God. It's a tragic misunderstanding of Scripture to reach the idea that faith gives me a reason to ignore what God says I should do. That is to miss the point entirely. What happens then is well-meaning, sincere men and women who have taken the revealed Word of God and read it but read into it something that is more acceptable to them than what God said. And what happens is they separate obedience from faith and get the notion, all I've got to do is believe. And it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I act. It doesn't matter what I do. The rest of the scripture is null and void because I believe. That has never been the case and will never be the case. Like the Jews, that's refusing to submit to God. Like the Jews, that's, you can be sincere. 
You can genuinely believe in God. You can genuinely want to be saved. You can genuinely want to serve God. But that's disconnecting faith from the cross. Because the cross requires a man to lay down his life. The cross requires a man to submit to God. The cross requires obedience to God. What, the, what you're saying or what they're saying if they do that is that I'll meet God on my own terms. I'll meet God the way I want to meet God. And God's going to have to accept my idea, what I think, and just overlook the rest of the Word of God. That causes sincere, well-meaning people to be lost. And that should bother us. I go all the way back to the first verse, if you'll stand with me as I close. I go all the way back to the first verse, because this is the condition that the Jews were in. They had the knowledge. They had everything they needed. They had the word of God. But, and they were sincere about it. They were genuine. Brother Donnie, they really wanted to live for God. They, they weren't keeping the law despite God. They really believed. Paul believed he was right. But he was wrong. So often we look at that and we say, well, you know, they were sincere and they're in the hands of God. And they are. They were sincere and they are in the hands of God. But one day they'll stand before God that will say it was in my word. That's out of my hands. That's as simple as the Jews, Paul said, were lost. That's got a lot of gravity to it. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about heaven and hell. They were lost. Not because they didn't have the word, but because they didn't have the knowledge that the word contained. They were blind to it. Because they found something that sounded better to them. Better than putting their faith in God was putting their faith in themselves. Better than putting themselves in submission to God was, was enabling themselves to please God. So they found a way that seemed better to them and they served God that way. And the end result is sincere, well-meaning, good, honest people were lost. Were lost. For eternity they were lost. The truth is this morning that's still happening. This isn't just a first century problem. This isn't just a Jewish problem. People are still saying, I'm going to serve God my way. I'm going to serve God to the best of my ability in the way that I understand it. And they simply, it's not, Brother Donnie, they're bad people. It's that they don't see. They haven't, it hasn't, they haven't read it. They haven't understood it. It hasn't been revealed to them. It's tragic. But it's truth. Truth doesn't change. And the truth is, the only way to come to God is through faith. And faith always produces obedience. This morning it should trouble us. It should stir us to compassion. At the very least it should drive us to a prayer closet. That there are men and women in this community who are sincere. Who really want to please God. Who really want to serve God. Just haven't 
ever really understood what that means. Ultimately, it should motivate us to do everything that we can to reach them with the truth before it's too late. I spent an extended period of time this morning on the first verse because I knew I was going to come back to it. I feel like this morning would be a really good time to find a place of prayer and say to the Lord, Lord, would you give me a genuine burden for the lost? Would you give, somehow let it break my heart like it broke Paul's heart? Somehow let it stir me like it stirred him? Chapter 9, Paul said, I would if I could lay down my life for them that they might be saved. That's a very deep-seated burden. I wonder in this place this morning if we could just come and find a place of prayer. Everyone under the sound of my voice, if we could just find a place of prayer.